We are continuing today in our series, Conformed to the Image of Jesus, with a message entitled, Jesus is Righteousness from God. And we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1 in verse 30 and 31. So if you'll turn in your Bibles and find that passage, I'll be there in just a few moments. Spiritual formation is the subject that is before us. And what's in view, basically, is what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus. What does it mean for us as people who call ourselves Christians to be like Jesus? It's for the glory of God. It's for our own good. And it's also a blessing to others as we live our lives for him. The focal point for the series is Romans 8 and verse 29 where the Bible says of believers that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. This idea of being conformed means to receive the same form as or to render like. So to be like Jesus is the goal. That's the preferred spiritual vision of what it means to be a child of God and to be born again. Your conformity to the image of Jesus is dependent on the power of the Spirit of God in the application of the Word of God to your life. So God's plan for your life is that you would grow to be more like Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, it says, It is from Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Verse 31, In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We look first in these verses at how Jesus is wisdom from God. He's the personification of wisdom in the Old Testament. And he is the wisdom of God in creation. And as wisdom from God, he is pure in every regard. He is peace-loving, gentle, and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruit and unwavering and sincere. So we can say that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and all of it is available to us when we come to him by faith. We are focusing today on how Jesus is righteousness from God. As I think back, I think about the story of Noah in the book of Genesis and it was a time when the world was dominated by evil and corruption and violence. It was almost chaos in the way that the people were living in their wickedness. And Genesis 6 and verse 9 says of Noah that Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation and Noah walked with God. He did everything that God commanded him to do. You remember God decided that he was going to send a flood upon the earth in judgment so he tells Noah to build an ark in which he and his family and two of each kind of animal would be spared on uh, the earth. And in Hebrews 11 and verse 7 in the great chapter of the hall of fame of the faith, it says, by faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. And by faith, he condemned the world. And listen to what it says. And became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. 
I share that with you to say that Noah was a blessing to his family and ultimately to the world. The key was his faith. And because of his faith, he was an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Today, as we think about Mother's Day and the blessing of mothers specifically and families more broadly, we need to be mindful of the fact that if we want to be a blessing to our families and to the world, it will be by faith and it will be through the righteousness that comes from God. And just as God used Noah to make a difference in the world, he can use your life to make a difference in the world as well. We are living in a unique time in world history, and we have the privilege to be a part of God's plan for the ages. And every single person is going to spend eternity somewhere. And each of us can make a difference in the lives of other people by sharing the good news of Jesus with them, and then by being a blessing because we've received the righteousness that comes by faith, and we're living for God in the world just like Noah did. We need to be built up in the holy faith, and we need to commit ourselves to uh, walk in the righteousness of Jesus. So in these few moments that we have together from our main text, I want to show you three truths about righteousness from God's word and what it means that Jesus is righteousness from God. And the first truth is this, God's perfect righteousness is the standard. That's the standard. That's the the measure of how we understand righteousness to begin with. The righteousness of God is one of the most prominent themes in the Bible. The words righteousness and righteous appear well over 500 times in the Word of God. To be righteous means to be upright in character. Righteousness means to be just, innocent, and honest. One of the Old Testament words for righteousness refers specifically to accuracy. Uh, What is correct? What is right? What is honest? And what is accurate in its ways? And when we look to God and what it teaches us about God's righteousness in the Bible, we learn that God is absolutely just. He is innocent. He is upright. And he is honest in all of his ways. He is just in his actions. He is upright in all of his ways. He is honest in all of his dealings. And he always does what is right and what is consistent with his character. Let's consider just a few verses from the Psalms that speak to this very thing. Psalm 11 and verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. Psalm 89 and verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. Psalm 97 and verse 6 says, The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. And then Psalm 145 and verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his acts. Richard Strauss, the Bible teacher, wrote that God's righteousness is the natural expression of his holiness. If he is infinitely pure, then he must be opposed to all sin. And that opposition to sin must be demonstrated in his treatment of his creatures. When we read that God is righteous or just, we're being assured that his actions toward us 
are in perfect agreement with his holy nature. Now we know that because of stubborn and rebellious hearts, and often our own stubborn and rebellious hearts, that people, and sometimes we, tend to do what is right in our own eyes. And people have a very difficult time because of that, uh, believing that there is such a thing as a standard of righteousness. Now, if you believe the Bible and you have a fear of God and his word, then it's much easier to believe that. But if you don't, you're probably going to be going in a different direction. Isaiah 5 and verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 21, woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. Jesus said light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The reason people don't like the idea of a standard of righteousness or the idea that there is such a thing as truth or the concept of a God who is absolutely holy is because they want to do what they want to do. And if you can call good evil and evil good, then you can make a God of your own forming and fit him to whatever life it is that you want to live. And obviously that's contrary to the Bible and it's contrary to the character of God. A little over a month ago, Dr. Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, addressed the confusion of the age that we live in as he uh, consistently does in the briefing, uh, his podcast. And in this particular one, he was dealing with the issue of the male swimmer who competed against females. And Moeller wrote a piece entitled, The Transgender Revolution and the Death of Truth. And here's what he writes in part. He said, in a Sports Illustrated cover story, Thomas, the male swimmer, expressed relief in now being able, quote, to finally live an authentic life, end quote. That definition of authenticity, however, requires the abandonment of the authenticity revealed in creation of the authenticity that underlies human social order and of any authentic rendering of girls' and women's sports. Christian concern requires, Moeller continues, that we see the swimmer identified as Leah Thomas as a human being made in God's image, deserving of our concern. But that concern cannot justify a blatant attempt to undermine the very order of creation. The Bible reveals that any attempt to subvert creation ends in disaster, not in human liberation. Our society stands on the brink of that disaster. The great question remaining is whether there is enough sanity and courage left in our society to avoid the total abdication of truth. It is now plain to see that we face a demand to jump into the deep end of a pool of mass delusion. Whatever it takes, Moeller writes, summon the courage to resist that dive. If we hold to the reality of God and the concept of truth in his word, and if we believe at a foundational level that a standard of righteousness exists, then issues like 
what is a man or a woman, what is acceptable sexually in God's sight, issues like whether or not life in the womb should be valued and protected, these are not complex issues, nor are they ones that we should capitulate to a culture that has gone mad and denies that there is, in fact, such a standard. Now, considering the big issues, it's fairly easy to see the standard of who God is and what he has said in his word. But I would also say to you today that it is just as important that we see this in our own lives as well. Because when the standard of the righteousness of God comes clearly into view, then we see individually how far we fall short and how greatly we are in need of the grace of God. We understand that we cannot depend on some version of self-righteousness to measure up to God who is the perfect standard. We understand the truth of Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So while it is easy to identify the unrighteousness of others, we must also first see our own unrighteousness. And whether it's idolatry or strife or anger or envy or hypocrisy or any number of other things, we see ourselves for who we truly are in light of who God is. There's a second truth about righteousness, and that is that sinners have no righteousness on their own. Now, we have no righteousness on our own, and that basically means that by ourselves, we cannot be reconciled to God and be saved. There's no way on our own. There's there's not a path back if it depends on us. If God does not intervene on our behalf, then we have no way to get back to him. The apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3 and verse 10 and following, there is no one righteous, not even one. He's speaking of the lost condition. He says there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. And then he says in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. When the righteousness of God is revealed, it reveals our sinful condition. And we are like people who have committed crimes and we've been put in prison. And the law will only help us if we are innocent. But the problem is we're guilty. We stand separated from God. And unrighteousness is the condition of not being right with God according not to our standard, but to God's standard. And the Bible says in Isaiah that all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. When Isaiah wrote that, Israel was in a place of rebellion against God. It was some seven centuries before Jesus came, before the long-awaited and promised Messiah was realized on this earth. And Isaiah's reference speaks to any attempt to offer up our own version of religion or our own version of righteousness in order to make ourselves acceptable to God because it's always going to fall short. This reference to filthy rags in Isaiah 64 and verse 6 is a rather stark one because it refers specifically to female bodily discharges, and that's as descriptive as I'm going to get at the moment. 
But here's what Charles Haddon Spurgeon had to say about it. He said the expression filthy rags in the Hebrew is one which we could not with propriety fully explain in the present assembly. As the confession must be made privately and alone before God so that the full meaning of the comparison is not meant for human ear. The point remains and it is important. Our righteousness comes from God as a gift of his grace. And our unrighteousness comes from the outflow of a sinful fallen nature. Meaning that we are all guilty of sinning against God and others in our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Now it's very interesting that if you have conversation with uh, people who uh, have some concept of spiritual matters or uh, maybe you're just trying to engage them with the gospel but regardless of where they are and you were to ask them how does a person go to heaven what do they need to do to go to heaven assuming that they at least have a basic belief in the concept many people will answer you well you got to be a good person that's a very common it's probably the dominant answer is you got to be a good person in fact, a number of religions in the world teach that very thing. The concept is that if your good works tip the scales and you're over the bad works and the evil things, then you're going to go to heaven. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that our very best efforts are going to fall short of the glory of God. We can't offer God any righteousness of our own that he's not first given to us. I think about the discussion of Abraham from the Old Testament in the book of Romans in chapter 4. And Paul wrote that if Abraham was justified by his works, then he had something to boast about. He makes the point that the one who works for them, pay is not a gift, but it is something that is owed. And he says this in Romans 4 and verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him. It's also translated as reckoned to him for righteousness. Now, conversely, according to Romans 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. So let's make the connection here. When you work for your sin, when you live in sin, your wages are going to be death. And eternal separation from God. Adam Clark, the commentator, said every sinner earns this by long and sore and painful service. He said, what pains do men take to get to hell? Early and late they toil at sin. And would not divine justice be in their debt if it did not pay them their due wages? We cannot do anything to save ourselves. Your salvation is not as a result of your abilities it's not as a result of your good works, however many they might be. It's not as a result of your service to others. It's not as a result of anything other than the grace of God. Because your acts cannot produce salvation. Salvation is a free gift from God. And that leads me to the third truth about righteousness. And that is God imputes righteousness to all who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. Now I know this word impute is not one that we commonly go around 
using. I can remember the first time that I encountered it and really began to think through it. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a moment. But the idea is that you cannot make yourself righteous or place yourself in right standing with God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made clear our need for righteousness and what the standard is. He said in Matthew 5 and verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now you're thinking, wait a minute here. Nobody is perfect. And you'd be absolutely right. You're also thinking, I cannot be perfect. And you would be right again. You are absolutely correct. Because nobody is perfect and because of that standard that we've already talked about and the fact that we have no righteousness of our own to measure up to that standard, the gospel tells us that God has done something on our behalf so that we can be declared righteous in Christ. And this is exactly what 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30 is all about. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became, what? Our righteousness. So here's what imputed righteousness means. It means that when God justifies us through faith and declares us righteous, he credits the righteousness of Jesus to our account. I remember I was in a New Testament class at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and we were studying the book of Romans. And the professor began to talk about the imputation of righteousness and what God does for the believing sinner. Now, I'd been a Christian since I was seven years old. I believed it. I knew I was saved. I'd probably heard the word before, but hadn't paid much attention to it. And in that moment, it stood out to me like never before. And I realized with a greater depth of understanding that God had done that for me. That this wasn't something that I could earn. This wasn't something that I could work to try to keep. This wasn't something that I deserved. It was just God did it for me because he loved me. And that's what God will do for you as well if you trust in Christ as your Savior. Now, the Bible teaches that when Adam sinned, his guilt was imputed to us as the federal head. God the Father viewed the sin that took place in the garden as belonging to us. Romans 5 gives this very discussion. And that means that we are sinners by nature. It's who we are. And we are sinners by choice. It's what we do. But when Christ suffered and died for our sins, our sin was then imputed to Christ who paid the penalty for it. And when we repent and believe, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us and God sees the righteousness of Jesus as belonging to us so that the righteousness of Christ is freely given to us and in justification, we are declared to be righteous. So when we sing about our sins being nailed to the cross, that's what we're talking about. That Christ took the penalty that we deserved. He paid your penalty so that you might be reconciled to God. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him or it was credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness. 
So here's how it applies to us personally. When we believe in Jesus, his righteousness is reckoned to us. It is credited to our account. That's what imputed righteousness means. The Evangelical Dictionary of Theology put it this way. Imputed righteousness therefore means that upon repentance and belief in Christ, individuals are forensically declared righteous. This righteousness is not the believer's own. Rather, it is Christ's own righteousness that is imputed or given to, credited to the believer. John Bunyan of Pilgrim's Progress fame wrote a number of other things, including grace abounding. And he referred specifically to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. And he said, by this scripture, I saw that the man Christ Jesus is our righteousness and sanctification before God. Here, therefore, I lived sometime very sweetly at peace with God through Jesus Christ. George Whitfield, the evangelist of the 18th century, said, Christ's whole personal righteousness is made over to and accounted to the believer. They are enabled to lay hold on Christ by faith, and God the Father blots out their transgressions as with a thick cloud. In one sense, God now sees no sin in them. By having Christ's righteousness imputed to them, they are dead to the law as a covenant of works because Christ has fulfilled it for them and in their stead. So let me summarize this for you. The way that you're forgiven is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's because his blood covers your sins. So you can stand forgiven, freely and fully forgiven, all because of what Christ has done for you. Friends, those are words of hope that we don't have to do something in order to be forgiven. We receive what God has done for us by faith when we look to him. That means that we can be saved, that we can be in right standing with God, that we can be reconciled to the God who has created us and given us life. But it also tells us that we can be sanctified, and that's what we're thinking about in being conformed to the image of Jesus, is that because we've been forgiven and because we've been saved, now we're growing in the likeness of Christ and his power is at work through us. But you know what else it means? It means that we are secure in Christ. It means that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, tells us that we are secure not because our efforts. We are secure because of the love of God that is for us in Christ. These are words of hope. These are words of life. These are words of encouragement. And this is the gospel that we find our rest in. And that's why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in who he is. Boast in what he has done. Boast in what he has promised to do. Perfect righteousness is required for your salvation. And the only way you can receive it is through faith in Christ. You cannot do it yourself. I want to show you one more verse and I'm going to wrap things up. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 summarizes the whole deal. And here it is. God made the one who did not know sin, speaking of Jesus, 
to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That Jesus would be willing to become sin for us and to have the full penalty of the wrath of God laid upon himself, suffering in our place, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's only one way to come to the Christian faith, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one way to live the Christian life, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And when you come to know him, you become the righteousness of God in him, and you can now live life filled with the Spirit. You can ask God for wisdom, and he will give it to you liberally and abundantly, and you can live according to who he created you to be as a child of God. This is the life we've been called to. This is the blessing that we've been invited into. This is the privilege that we get to experience for all of eternity. And I ask you, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't desire it? And it's ours, it's yours to be received as a gift through faith. Let's bow our heads together just for a moment as we reflect on these verses and these truths about righteousness. I know that the great many of you are Christians, you've been born again, you would say that Jesus is your only hope. I want you to take just a moment and just express gratitude to God for what he's done for you. Thank him that you have hope and his peace with you in every step of your life. Friends, don't ever get over your salvation. Don't ever let it become something that is routine. Understand what God's done for you and give him the glory. Boast in Jesus. But I also know enough to know that in a group this size that there's some folks that don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord. You might have come to church today for your mother or you might be here as a uh, first-time guest and you've not yet met Christ, but you're looking for something. Well, I want you to know God was already looking for you and he wants you to know him. You say, well, pastor, how can I, how can I take that step? I, I, I want to know God. I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to have eternal life. The Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. Right now in this moment, as an expression of your faith, you can let God know that you believe that his word is true and that he sent his only son to live and to die and now live again for you. And you can ask God very plainly to forgive you and for Jesus Christ to be your Savior and Lord. And God will reckon to you credit to your account the righteousness of Jesus. That's where life is to be found. That's where forgiveness is to be found. That's where eternity is to be secured. Would you trust in him? God, I thank you today that you are the God of all righteousness. We stand in awe of your holiness. There is none other like you. And we've come into this place today in a spirit of worship. We've come to lift our voices in song and in prayer 
We've come to rejoice over these precious children that have been dedicated, these parents that have committed themselves to raise their children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And we've heard from your word about the power of salvation and the righteousness that comes to us through Jesus Christ. I pray we wouldn't waste that opportunity, but we would trust in you and we would rest in who we are in Christ. I pray for my brothers and sisters, and God, it's, it's challenging in this world that we live in. So many things swirling around us and to discourage us and to get our eyes off of you. But I, I thank you, God, that you're the, you're the God of, of grace who sees us through the difficulties of life. You're the God who brings reconciliation uh, when our relationships are broken. You're the God who brings a healing salve to the wounds that we experience as we walk through this world. And we just say thank you. Thank you that you have not left us. You'll never leave us or forsake us. You're with us. And, and, and we honor you today. And I pray if there are decisions that need to be made, steps of faith that need to be taken, that people would respond appropriately to your word and to your spirit. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.